I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're very happy to see you all here this evening. There are uh, copies of the library's calendar and program flyers for all of our upcoming events on the table back there by the door, so please check that out before you leave. Our Writers' Lives programs are supported in part by a grant from PNC Bank, and we want to say thank you to them. And it's my pleasure this evening to welcome a neighbor and a friend um, to the podium to introduce our featured author, Scott Shane, um, Rebecca Corbett, who is Assistant Managing Editor of the New York Times. So please join me in welcoming first Rebecca. Welcome. I've known Scott nearly three decades, first as a colleague and his editor at The Sun, and then at The New York Times, where the beginnings of this book emerged. I'm happy to say that he's really gotten the hang of this reporting and writing thing. (laughs) There are some recurring themes in Scott's work over the years. He's interested in complicated subjects and discovering the logic of how things go bad, whether he's exploring the economics of the drug trade on a northwest Baltimore corner, examining the contagion of blight through the history of one block on what had once been one of Baltimore's grandest avenues, or investigating the tobacco industry's relentless way of circumventing restraints intended to limit harm. He's interested in unintended consequences and the cost-benefit of government policies and tools, whether in the Soviet Union, which was defeated by the flow of information, at the National Security Agency, where he did groundbreaking work well before the world heard of warrantless wiretapping or Edward Snowden, or about the drone program, where a seemingly perfect weapon that avoided putting U.S. troops on the ground has also created deep damage. This book grew out of Scott's reporting at the Times, where he has been dogged in his coverage of the drone program and its human, legal, ethical, and geopolitical consequences. With his typical deep reporting, he tells this story of the killing of an American citizen without court oversight, reporting from Yemen, where he interviewed Anwar Alaki's brother and father, who told Scott that he still loved America, despite the assassination of his son. From cities across the United States, where Alaki's early views were shaped at various mosques and schools, and from Washington, where he examined Barack Obama's embrace of a program that has wiped out some enemies of the United States, but also sowed deep resentment in much of the Muslim world. Scott raises piercing questions about this new way of war. His superb storytelling skills make Operation Troy a riveting read, a narrative enriched with vivid details and focused on two men, the preacher who turned against America and inspired would-be jihadists around the globe, and the president who thought deeply about just wars and appointed himself the final arbiter of which human targets a predator drone would incinerate. Scott has delivered a terrific book about a killing and a moral choice that changed history, a story that is timely and vital to understanding America's place in the world. Please welcome him to tell you more about it. Thank you. Wow, she put that so well. I I don't know where to begin. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks to Judy and the Pratt for having me here, and thanks to all of you for um, making the trek to the to this wonderful library in this great room um, to hear uh, about a, a a subject that that is not everybody's favorite, um, you know, terrorist bombings and targeted killing. Um, this the this morning I did something. This is I wasn't planning to say this, but. It's uh, part of the experience of being an author these days. Uh, they did something that they sometimes call a, a radio satellite tour. Oop. That's, the, that's the closing announcement for the library. I did something called a radio satellite tour where I was on, I think it was 10 radio stations in an hour. And you just sit there on your, holding your phone and, and you're, you know, now San Diego's coming in. Okay, hold for Cleveland. And <laughs> So I'll try to slow the pace down a little bit, uh, and I'll try to leave plenty of time for questions. Um, Let me start by just telling you 
those of you who don't know, uh, you know, very briefly what this book is about. Um, first, first of all, it's about uh, the um, the most effective, most powerful, most influential Al Qaeda recruiter in the English language. Um, you know, in the history of of the terrorist network. And uh, it's also about the same guy who was the first American citizen to be deliberately hunted down and killed uh, in a drone strike on the orders of a a president. So um, let me take you back to uh, 14 years to uh, the days after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And there's a young... Um, kind of hip, very well-spoken imam at a big mosque outside D.C. in Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, Anwar Awliki at that time was 30 years old. He had just been hired uh, you know, less than a year before, uh, ironically enough, uh, because there was a kind of radical storefront mosque that the folks at this mosque were, were, uh, were worried were sort of luring the youth away. So he was hired to lure the youth back. And he was, uh, he was really kind of hitting his stride. He was native in Arabic and English. He spoke, uh, you know, sort of American slang. And unlike a lot of the imams who were immigrants who spoke with a heavy accent and didn't really understand, uh, you know, young Americans, he spoke directly to, uh, to, to the children of immigrants who themselves were in American high schools and uh, who were sort of grappling with... Uh, the, the tensions between their parents' culture and American culture. And he, uh, so 9-11 comes along, all of a sudden there's this huge hunger for uh, information about Islam. Uh, Americans all of a sudden are very interested in, uh, in this religion, and uh, as the question of the time went, uh, why do they hate us? Uh, and this guy was sort of uniquely situated, uh, I'm looking for a piece of paper here that I have some quotes on that I'm going to read. Here it is. Um, This guy was uniquely situated next to this huge media market, uh, one of the few imams around who could speak American English without an accent. And uh, we of the media discovered him very quickly and started, uh, you know, crossing the Potomac, going to Falls Church to to, to interview him about Islam, about 9-11, about related things, and his, uh, his star suddenly rose, and he was quoted in, in the New York Times, he was quoted in the Washington Post, he was on TV, and he was saying at the time, um, you know, what a lot of Americans would consider to be all the right things. Uh, he said in a sermon at the time, we came here to build, not to destroy, we are the bridge between America and one billion Muslims worldwide. And I think he very much saw himself as that bridge. Um, The Washington Post followed him around for a day uh, during Ramadan, during the holy month of Ramadan. And he did a video for the Washington Post on their website uh, explaining Ramadan. You can still find it like just about everything else this guy did on YouTube. And uh, he speaks with this very kind of winning style, explaining things in a very, very patient way, in a a very... um, in a sort of elegant way, uh, and he says uh, in that uh, video, uh, I think that in general Islam is presented in a negative way. I mean, there's always this association between Islam and terrorism, when that's not true at all. I mean, Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, he even seemed to embrace American exceptionalism at the time. Uh, sometimes he said things that would have been um, not out of place at a, at a Republican National Convention. Uh, once in a sermon he said, we are against the moral decay that we see in the society, meaning American society, but we also cherish a lot of the values that are in America. Freedom is one of them. Opportunity is another. Uh, so, you know, the question arises, was this guy dissembling? And uh, I found in the research from a book that he was not. He was saying the same thing to family and friends privately that he was saying publicly. His brother, who I uh, met in Yemen, and who until recently, Yemen is now in the middle of a big war, but he was uh, until recently the deputy minister of water and the environment, a very good guy. And he dug through his old emails and found some emails that Anwar had sent him in the days after, immediately after 9-11, in which he called the attacks horrible, said he was very upset about them. But he also said something else that I think is quite characteristic of this guy. He said, 
uh, to his brother in that email, I hope we can use this for the good of all of us. Uh, listen to that. I hope we can use this for the good of all of us. He's idealistic, uh, as a lot of people were in those days, thinking, you know, how can we turn this into something good? Uh, the neighbors, the non-Muslim neighbors of the mosque and Falls Church actually came out one night and did a candlelight vigil, held hands and surrounded the mosque to sort of show solidarity um, and show that they were not hostile to their Muslim neighbors. And it was sort of the tone of the time. But I hope we can use this for the good of all of us. Also hinted at his ambition at the time. He was uh, you know, be- becoming a national figure, and he was a very ambitious guy, and he, he kind of thought um, maybe this was his moment, and, and it, it really was. He was sort of the, the right guy in the right place at the right time. And I should say that his, um, his views very much reflected uh, his upbringing. His father had come to the States in 1966 on a Fulbright, uh, told me that one of his first memories was going to Kansas to, for a kind of intensive English uh, class and learning that at the cafeteria he could have all the milk he wanted to drink. Um, and that just made a huge impression on him, coming from Yemen, the poorest country in the Arab world, uh, sort of Saudi Arabia uh, without the oil. And he ended up staying for 12 years earning a PhD teaching uh, as an assistant professor before going back to Yemen. And he, uh, Nasser Awliki, the father, um, took with him this kind of really deep love of America. And uh, he used to get up, his sons told me that he used to get up early in the morning to watch Larry King live, live on satellite uh, from, you know, Sana'a, was, I don't know, five in the morning or something like that. Uh, and uh, Anwar's mother, Nasser's wife, uh, had learned to bake apple pies in America, and she often made apple pies in Yemen for, for, for her family. Um, so, you know, he, this is sort of where he came from. Now, I don't want to give away the whole book, so uh, I'm going to fast forward nine years from 9-11. Um, <clears throat> Awaki... Uh, in 2010, this is March of 2010, he's very much a public figure. Um, he's still addressing the public. He's quoted once again in the New York Times and the Washington Post. But his message has changed a little bit. Um, he has, uh, it, there's a particular um, video that he put out at that time, uh, which was entitled The Call to Jihad. And uh, in it, he's, he uh, praises the young Nigerian who had tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day in 2009. You'll remember the underwear bomber. Uh, the bomb fizzled, but Anwar Awlaki had actually been behind that plot. Uh, the Nigerian had come to Yemen to find him because he idolized him like a lot of young uh, jihad-minded uh, guys. And he found him, and Awlaki essentially vetted him and coached him for this, for this plot and actually told him to wait until he was over American soil before he blew, blew up the plane. So, as you can tell, the message has changed somewhat. In that, in that uh, video in 2010, he, uh, he said, America thought that it could threaten the lives of others, kill and, ev- kill and invade, occupy and plunder, and conspire without bearing the consequences of its actions. 9-11 was the answer of the millions of people who suffered from American aggression. So his, his view of 9-11 has changed a bit over nine years. And since then, America has not been safe. And nine years after 9-11, nine years of spending and nine years of beefing up security, you are still unsafe even on the holiest and mo- most sacred days, sorry, and most sacred of days to you, Christmas Day. That's kind of typical because he had lived in America for a long time and knew exactly what buttons to push. So even though that, that attack had failed, he kind of uses it to illustrate that America is still in danger uh, even on Christmas Day. He, in that same tape, he mocks Obama as sort of a, an impotent version of George W. Bush, and he, he addresses American Muslims directly. Uh, he says, with the American invasion of Iraq and continued U.S. aggression against Muslims, I could not reconcile between living in the U.S. and being a Muslim. 
this is sort of revisionist history. Maybe we'll get to that. And I eventually came to the conclusion that jihad against America is binding upon myself just as it is binding upon every other Muslim. How can your conscience, this is again addressed directly, he says I'm now addressing American Muslims, how can your conscience allow you to live in peaceful coexistence with a nation that's responsible for the tyranny and crimes committed against your own brothers and sisters? How can you have your loyalty to a government that is leading the war against Islam and Muslims? So what had happened in those nine years? How had a guy who'd been born in the U.S., went to college in the U.S., enjoyed a stellar career in three American mosques and was raising a family in in suburban America very happily, decide uh, after some years that the purpose of his life was actually to kill Americans, including civilians. Uh, It was really to answer that question uh, that I really began to look into this story. Um, And it it's, you know, I think it's, it's a question that has disturbed many, many Americans in the 14 years since 9-11. The second thing I wanted to do with the book was to look at American response to 9-11, American response to terrorism. So many of the things that um, I and my colleagues had covered over the years since 2001 um, had really challenged or changed or violated American values Uh, In other words, America had been really uh, deeply changed by the response to to 9-11. If you think about torture, if you think about detention without trial, secret detention, if you think about uh, Guantanamo Bay and all the people held there for years uh, without uh, without trial, um, all those things, you you know, are the kinds of things that we used to, that the, the State Department every year criticizes other countries for, in its annual report on human rights. Um, And, of course, these are the things that Barack Obama campaigned against in 2008. He said a lot of these things, secret jails and torture, were recruiting tools for al-Qaeda and that he thought we could be secure and still live in in harmony with our traditional values. And that was, you know, a major plank of his presidential campaign. What was interesting to see was that one quite aggressive counterterrorism tactic that Obama never denounced, and indeed it was essentially classified, so he, he couldn't really speak openly about it during the campaign, but that he embraced wholeheartedly when he became president. To the surprise of a lot of his uh, fans and supporters was targeted killing, the use of armed drones to kill suspected terrorists, uh, first in Pakistan and then he expanded it to Yemen. And so one of the things that I wanted to understand, along with understanding Anwar Awlaki and what happened to him, was kind of what happened to Barack Obama. And, you know, what I came to realize was this was not a turn for this guy. Um, Obama in 2002, one of the reasons he actually won the presidency, won uh, won the Democratic nomination over Hillary Clinton in particular, was that he had come out publicly against the Iraq invasion in 2002, against invading Iraq. But if you listen carefully to what he said in Chicago at the time, he said repeatedly as a sort of refrain, he said, I'm not against all wars, I'm against dumb wars. And as he ran for president, I always remember the Onion headline right after he was elected, uh, Black Man Gets America's Worst Job. Um, And when you think what he was inheriting, among other things, he was inheriting two huge wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, he felt strongly uh, that, of course, that the Iraq war was a mistake in general, but that the two wars had had very equivocal outcomes. You know, it was hard to argue that they had made America decisively safer against terrorism. So one of the things that he said to AIDS a lot was, let's kill the people who are trying to kill us. And the drone, even, uh, even as a senator, he had been intrigued by the drone. This is a you know, fairly young president who was very interested in technology. You remember Obama uh, in the early years of his presidency and his BlackBerry, you know, fighting to keep his BlackBerry and so on. And I think he saw the drone as the perfect counterterrorism weapon that could pick off terrorists who were you know, out there in twos and threes in the tribal areas of Pakistan and Yemen without killing all these other people that uh, had died in the big wars and without putting Americans at risk as well. And so uh, it was not actually a break with uh, his thinking. It wasn't really a turn. It was something he was planning to do all along. 
And if you go back and listen to his cam- campaign speeches, again, he doesn't use the word drones because of you know, the classification rules. But he does talk about, uh, at one point uh, in 2007, running for office, he says, if we know where uh, al-Qaeda leaders are hiding in Pakistan and Musharraf, then the president of Pakistan, won't or can't do anything about it, we will take action. And he took a lot of heat at the time. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton, among others, uh, accused him of threatening to invade uh, the territory of an ally. But he wasn't thinking about an invasion. He was thinking about the drone. So what happened? Um, so this guy was very much a pragmatist. You know, he was often mistaken as a, a sort of left-wing ideologue, uh, including by uh, supporters on the left. But he's really, I think, a relentless uh, pragmatist when it really comes down to it. One thing, looking for seeds of the Obama uh, that we've kind of come to see uh, on the counterterrorism front, I found a fascinating essay from a, a former Baltimorean, Frederick Douglass, uh, that Obama assigned to a law school class when he was teaching constitutional law in Chicago. He assigned a fairly obscure essay from the 1850s called, by Frederick Douglass called, Is It Right and Wise to Kill a Kidnapper? And it's basically about slave catchers. And it asks the question, is it moral and ethical to kill someone who represents basically pure evil? And uh, so, you know, I've, to my knowledge, uh, Obama himself has never made the connection. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's sort of an interesting one. And, and I think that uh, what Douglas says about slave catchers who are returning, you know, escaped slaves uh, to bondage is very much what Obama would say about, uh, about people like Anwar Awlaki. So he came, uh, he assigned the Justice Department to look into, you know, is it legal and constitutional to kill an American citizen? And they came up with uh, some secret classified legal opinions that told him he could. And he gave the order. And eventually, in September of 2011, it took them a while, and there was this massive manhunt that I describe in the book involving all the uh, 16 intelligence agencies uh, that, that you, you all pay for. Um, looking for this guy in the wilds of Yemen. They finally found him on September 30th, 2011, and killed him in a drone strike. And Obama announced it that morning and gave a radio interview about it in the afternoon. And I think there was a real feeling that this is exactly how things are supposed to work. This guy was an imminent threat to the United States. He was constantly plotting uh, to attack America. We've taken him out. We took out three of his al-Qaeda colleagues, another of whom was American, and this is the way the system should work. You know, no Americans were, no American, you know, troops were put at, at risk. And uh, the sense of sort of satisfaction and uh, complacency lasted for about two weeks until word came that another American drone strike, this one carried out by the military in Yemen, uh, had killed uh, seven people, I think it was, and one of them was the 16-year-old son of Anwar al who had no history of terrorism and who was with his 17-year-old cousin. Uh, and Obama, I'm told, he wouldn't talk to me, but I'm told was, was furious uh, because he recognized immediately what this would mean. And, you know, when I was in Yemen, a lot of people, uh, the, the drone program is extremely unpopular, but a lot of people understand it's a tribal society and they understand that Anwar al was trying to kill Americans you know, he sort of asked for it, and he got, you know, he got what he deserved at some level. The kid was not the same thing. The, the kid's death had a huge impact in Yemen, uh, alienating Yemenis from, you know, American, uh, America and its counterterrorism programs. Um, and, you know, there's sort of a huge and continuing cost that's being paid for, for that strike, uh, which I, I should say the, the United States government has never publicly acknowledged uh, that uh, that was a mistaken strike. Uh, and, in fact, I dug up a, uh, a State Department document when a, when a U.S. citizen, because the 16-year-old was also a U.S. citizen. He was born in Denver when his dad, when his parents were living in Denver. And, uh, and when a, a U.S. citizen dies overseas, the State Department has to fill out some kind of form saying, you know, how the death occurred. And the cause of death, uh, I was uh, chagrined to see on this form, is listed as unknown. Um, so anyway, uh, 
let me just wrap up, um, and then I can take your questions. But I'll wrap up by talking about a kind of disturbing last chapter chapter to this story. Uh, you know, despite all the um, the dispute over whether killing an American was legal and constitutional. Um, I don't think there was much of a dispute within the government. There was quite a bit of unanimity in the Obama administration, but there's obviously been a lot out among law professors and so on. And despite the tragic killing of the 16-year-old and his cousin, um, I think in general the Obama administration security folks felt like this was um, a legitimate strike and one that had made America a lot safer. Um, this guy was uh, you know, a powerful voice of radicalization, and he had begun to be an operational terrorist, and he was out of the picture. In fact, as recently as July, Obama was talking to a VFW convention, and he was sort of on a, on a roll um, strutting about uh, their counterterrorism record, talked about, of course, killing Osama bin Laden, and also he was rattling off the names of other terrorists who were killed, and he said, Anwar al gone. And there was a lot of applause. But if you go on YouTube today and you put Anwar Aliki's name into YouTube, you'll find this morning I did it, you find, and I can't, it showed uh, 43,100 hits. That means 40,000 videos, the vast majority of which are Anwar Aliki talking about a whole range of things. You got the early stuff from his uh, best selling CDs on the life of the Prophet Muhammad, totally mainstream Islamic history. And you've got the later stuff, uh, which I was reading about uh, how uh, the guy who shot up Fort Hood was a hero, how the Nigerian who tried to blow up the plane over Detroit was a hero, how it's the obligation of every Muslim to try and kill Americans. And it's all out there, and um, perhaps not surprisingly, it's having a huge impact. So you go, um, you know, he was killed in September of 2011. In 2013, you'll remember the two... Sarnaya brothers who set off two bombs at the Boston Marathon. They were huge fans of Anwar al-Laki. They tweeted about him, and they also got their bomb-making instructions from Anwar al-Laki's magazine called Inspire, uh, which had step-by-step instructions on how to turn a pressure cooker into a bomb, buying fireworks, breaking it open, pouring the powder out, and so on. They followed them to the letter, and they worked, unfortunately, very well at the Boston Marathon. Uh, and when the Charlie Hebdo, that satirical uh, magazine in, in Paris, was attacked by gunmen in January, they were huge fans of Anwar al and w- one of them claimed at least to have been to Yemen and to have met al uh, But that, those are some, some of the famous cases. But, y- you know, in my job I tend to read about all the minor cases that come along of people who either plot to, to, to blow something up or, uh, more recently, have uh, tried to, to fly off to Syria to join ISIS, to join the Islamic State. And in, I'd say, at least a majority of those cases, when the FBI looks at the laptops of these mostly young people who, are, who have these ideas, uh, they'll find uh, a big presence for Anwar al So, and, and the last point I'll make is that it's not just that he's, uh, his material is still there. But he, in the eyes of his admirers, is a martyr. And like in most religions, the status of martyrdom conveys you know, particular authority. And so now this is the guy that America killed. And if you put the word martyr and alaki into YouTube, you'll find um, lots of sort of video tributes to this guy, uh, some of which are very slick, very well done, um, clearly lovingly put together by his fans that argue that, uh, you know, this man is a martyr and we need to listen to what he had to say and we need to act on it. Uh, you know, wherever Anwar al is today, uh, if, he could, um, if he could follow the progress of events in, in the so-called uh, war on terror, I think he would be feeling pretty good about things. So why don't I um, stop there and I'd be happy to take your questions. Uh, no, but we're taping this for podcasting, so we need to hear you on the microphone. 
Uh, Scott, you, uh, in the book, which I have read and appreciated very much, I think it's a wonderful piece of work on many grounds, and in the book you talk about, you speculate a little bit about what caused the initial turning of Alaki away from his career and investment in America and his uh, his feeling of getting along by going along and all that sort of thing and going off to Yemen, first to Britain, I guess, and then to Yemen and becoming the later Alauki that you've talked about. Do you want to speculate a little bit for us about what may have been a triggering factor? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for the kind words and uh, for the question. Um, you know, one of the things that I suppose is true when anybody um, – when you study anybody's life, is that there are these turns, these sort of forks in the road, and you realize how uh, possible it would have been for this life to take a different turn and to end up in a different place. And, uh, you know, I think maybe the key turn in Anwar Awlaki's life was in March of 2002, when, as I said, he's, he's riding high, he's becoming a national figure, his younger brother comes to visit him. Uh, his younger brother at the time was attending college in New Mexico, and he comes to visit him actually because he wants to borrow Anwar's van to drive to New York to see a girl. But he decides to hang out for a few days with his brother and his brother's wife and kids. And one of the things he asks Anwar, this preacher who he admires, is how long are you staying in America? When are you coming back to Yemen because he told me, the younger brother told me, he admired what his father had done. His father had come back and become agriculture minister and a chancellor of a university and helped his country. And he wanted to see Anwar do the same thing. And to his disappointment, Anwar said, you know what, I'm really liking my life here. Things are going great. I actually have no intention of leaving the States. And um, just, I think it was two or three days later, the younger brother came to the mosque in Falls Church uh, for the last of the daily prayers, Isha it's called, and he, to his surprise, he found that his brother was not leading prayers as he usually would be. And he, found, he went poking around and he found his brother looking completely ashen. And his brother wouldn't even tell him what was wrong. But the next day uh, took him to a quiet place and told him, I just learned that uh, the FBI has a huge file on me that could ruin my life. And I'm thinking about leaving the U.S. Uh, what he didn't tell his younger, his admiring younger brother, what was, it, was, what was in that file. Um, the FBI had been following him around because two of the hijackers, the 9-11 hijackers, had prayed at Alaki's mosque, and they were a little uncertain about this guy. Um, so they put 24-hour surveillance on him. And what they found over the months after 9-11 was that he was not, in fact, a terrorist. They, they couldn't find any links to al-Qaeda. But they found that every week or two he would visit uh, prostitutes in Washington hotels. And this was a guy who um, preached a very uh, conservative brand of Islam, who was preaching to a conservative congregation. It was, you know, sort of the Muslim equivalent of... Uh, some of those um, fundamentalist uh, TV preachers who've been caught, uh, uh, you know, erring uh, in the past. And, and so this, uh, it, it turned out, I discovered from a document that I finally got the National Archives to, to declassify, that um, one of the managers of an escort service had called him and said, the FBI just came to see me and they've been following you around, they have pictures and they've talked to all the girls and... You know, and this just shattered him because he could not stand the idea of being exposed in front of his congregation. And so he took off. He came back for a brief visit later in 2002, but he took off never to return. And he, was, he retained the ambition, and he channeled it ultimately in a very, very different direction. But I think that's sort of the turn in his life. You know, and I'll just mention one other thing and then take another question, and that is, my second subject, the president, Barack Obama, writes in his, um, you know, his first book, Dreams from My Father, um, a really remarkable book for an American president to have written, a future American president to have written. He talks at one time about the temptation for a, uh, a young African-American man who was growing up basically without a father 
the temptation in response to racism of becoming radicalized. And he, he describes very eloquently the temptation of radicalism. And he actually talks about his own forks in the road. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to think that these are two guys who were the sons of uh, fathers from Muslim backgrounds who had come to the States to study and uh, who had been born in America as American citizens. And then both of them were taken overseas to live in Muslim countries. Anwar al-Lucky went back to Yemen for, uh, for sort of his, um, his school years. Um, Obama famously went to in Indonesia. And then they came back to America and so on. There's this weird parallel between these lives. And so you do wonder what might have happened if he had never learned about the FBI prostitution file. Would he, you know, be appearing on Meet the Press as a sort of, you know, leading spokesman for American, American Muslims? Um, it's an interesting possibility to think about. Um, I have, like, two questions, I think. Uh, the first... Well, the um, like you said, why do they hate us? From what all what you've written all the time and all your uh, investigation, um, why do they hate us? I mean, I still don't understand. I'm a history major, and and I'm thinking something to do with um, it could have started around the time of the uh, Iran '79 uh, when we when they, you know, we supported the Shah, and. Uh, is it because of the oil, you know, that we, we want the oil over there? Or, I don't know. Well, that's, I mean, a, that's a, a great and very complicated question. Um, you know, I don't really know the answer to that, but I will say that one answer is, uh, is American foreign policy or the perceptions of American foreign policy in the Muslim world. Um, you know, for a long time we supported a, a lot of dictators who were very unpopular, um, and that was uh, certainly a part of it. But one of the things that strikes you when you look back over the last 14 years uh, along these lines is bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, the founder of Al-Qaeda in 96 and 98, 1998, came out with sort of grand decrees about being at war with the United States. And he essentially was saying that America is at war with, with our religion, Islam. Um, you know, a sentiment that would become very familiar in later years. Uh, at the time, it seemed like a kind of lunatic notion what does he mean that the U.S. is at war with Islam? And what really bugged him, he was Saudi, of course, what really bugged him was that there were U.S. troops stationed in the holy land um, of, of the land of the two mosques, as it's called, of Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula. And that's what really bugged him. But it seemed kind of nuts. You know, what does he mean the U.S. is at war with Islam? Uh, so what happened after 9-11? We invaded Afghanistan. We invaded Iraq. We started um, killing people with drones in Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia. Um, this is not to condemn any of those things, but it is to say that if you went to an impressionable young Muslim who was sort of intrigued by al-Qaeda um, in 1998, you know, the, the argument being made might have seemed kind of uh, thin, to put it mildly. If you go today, you can point at a lot of evidence that America is killing Muslims. That's usually the, the phrase that's used um, all over the world. And that's one of the ironies of this whole period is that so many of the things that we've done, in addition to in some cases arguably making the United States safer from at least big attacks like 9-11, it's also generated a lot more enemies. And I think it's, uh, it's almost indisputable that the minority of Muslims who believe the U.S. is at war with Islam and who believe that violence is justified in response is probably bigger today around the world than it was on you know, September 11, 2001. So that's a worrisome thing. Before I ask my question, I just wanted to make a comment uh, about the gentleman's question. I think it's, it's often dangerous territory when we, we refer to the they as a group of people, whether it be within this own country, when we talk about racism, when we talk about the Baltimore uprising, we say they rioted or we say that these people did this. 
I think we need to be very careful about generalizing, whether it be about African Americans, whether it be about Muslims, because all Muslims, all African Americans, all people, all humans are not the same. So here, I think here. we just need to be very careful about the language you use. Uh, the question I had was in regards to, how, could you comment a little bit about the operationalization of safety? How do we measure safety through the counterfactual? How do we say that we are safer now um, because of these hundreds of attacks that have been uh, thwarted? Um, how, how do, you know, across the political spectrum, how do we measure that? How do we, how do we, um, how does a government uh, demonstrate that, that attacks have been avoided? And especially looking at the Aulaki uh, um, case, you know, it, have we avoided more tax because of his uh, government-sanctioned assassination? H- how do we measure that? Yeah, um, that's a great question. The, I mean, one thing to put uh, what you might call jihadist terrorism in perspective is that since 9-11, there's been somewhere approaching a quarter million deaths, um, well over 200,000 deaths um, from homicide in the United States. And of the, of the, the 200, 200, I think it's about 230,000 homicides since 9-11, um, somewhere around a couple dozen, depending on the definition, were motivated by, you know, it could be identified as, as sort of Al-Qaeda brand terrorism. So it's, uh, it's actually been a vanishingly small threat um, to Americans inside the United States over that period of time. Um, you can find a lot of people in the government who will say that's because of the excellent work we've been doing. Um, and, and it's also true that 3,000 people died on 9-11. So, you, you know, it's impossible to dismiss this threat. But sometimes I do think that, you know, I mean, we live in Baltimore. I often think what would happen if uh, some of the guys who, you know, who spray a corner with bullets and kill two or three people in an average uh, weekend were to yell Allahu Akbar before they did it. Um, You know, would there be TV cameras from all over America focused on this terrorist attack? Um, You know, there's something about fear of the other that that makes us sometimes exaggerate this threat. Um, But it it is very, you know, you're always, it's always counterfactual, as you say. You're always comparing it to what might happen. One thing that did impress me, though, in spending a lot of time talking to people about Obama's thinking and about and talking to a lot of counterterrorism officials, is the feeling of personal responsibility that these people have. If you're Obama and that plane had blown up over Detroit, that was 300 people dead um, on your watch. And uh, you know, I think there is often a real sense of personal responsibility for it um, among the people in government who spend their days worrying about this threat. And for Obama also, as for any elected official, any politician, there was the potential political consequences. Uh, if you remember 2009, Dick Cheney was running around um, to everyone who would listen saying, this president has made the country unsafe because he'd closed the secret prisons and he'd banned um, you know, brutal interrogations and so on. And he'd, of course, sharply criticized Cheney throughout the campaign. So if that plane had actually blown up, uh, it, it would have been easy for people to conclude, you know what, Cheney's right. And it's easy to kind of carry that out and think of Obama as a sort of one-term president with, with very few accomplishments uh, who kind of had to focus on counterterrorism after that uh, successful attack. And you can see why this guy, Anwar Awlaki, when his role in that attack got the attention of the people in the White House. Hi, I just would like to know whether in your book you address uh, whether people like Anwar uh, responded to that actually more Muslims are killed by fellow mm-hmm. Muslims mm-hmm. and then by Americans mm-hmm. uh, and how they justify that and why you don't hear about that. Well, that's... Um that's a very interesting question, one that you know I've, I've often wondered about, because Al-Qaeda has certainly killed 
far, far more Muslims than non-Muslims in its history. Um, I think the answer probably comes down to the role of ideology uh, or, uh, you know, a kind of ideology of religion in motivating violence. Um, there's a great footnote in Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn in which, that I always remember in this context, in which he says that Shakespeare's villains were pikers because they only killed you know, a dozen or two people, whereas uh, you know, Hitler and Stalin, they counted their victims in the millions, and that the reason was the Shakespeare villains didn't have ideology. And I think there's something to that, that if you believe strongly enough in a kind of utopian vision that if only we have the caliphate and everybody's Muslim, that's the way things are supposed to be and we're all living under Sharia law and we're all believing the same thing. You know, that is, that is in the mind of some people, including I think Anwar Awlaki, uh, a goal worth sacrificing, you know, a few thousand, a few tens of thousands, a few hundreds of thousand uh, human beings for. And... Um, in, one, in chapter 9 of my book, I kind of step aside from the plot and I talk about the question of what motivates that kind of violence. And I talk about some of these issues and I, uh, I put in there something that um, uh, an interview with a priest, a New York priest, Catholic priest, that I'd heard shortly after 9-11 that has just always stayed with me. And what he said... This is a Catholic priest who, who lived in New York for many, many years and did work with the poor there. And, uh, and anyway, he was interviewed by PBS after 9-11. And he said, when I saw those planes hit those buildings, I recognized an old friend. Still gives me chills. What did he mean? He meant he recognized religion. This is a guy who devoted his life to religion. But he had this sort of clear-eyed vision to say, when he saw those planes deliberately being plowed into those towers, he said there's only one force on earth that could motivate that, and it's religion. And, uh, and so anyway, I think that's part of the answer is that these guys are not, you know, a guy like Alaki is not thinking in those kinds of terms. We have a question up front that's been waiting for a while. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Scott. Um, <laughs> The the use of drones is, of course, a, t a tactic. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about it in the context of Obama's overall foreign policy. To me, his policy seems uh, somewhat paradoxical. On the one hand, he seems to have acted with some restraint in both Afghanistan and, and Iraq, withdrawing troops and so on. On the other hand, in a place like Ukraine, he seems to have taken a more of a neocon a position where he's uh, put tried to put Putin in more of a corner for forcing using NATO to um, uh, to restrain uh, through Ukraine to restrain the the Russians. Anyway, uh, can you talk about the drone uh, effort in a broader context? Yeah, I can try. Um, I mean, you know, I, I have a fairly na narrow specialty as a reporter, but um, you know, I guess thinking about Obama you know, writ large, I think he really aspired to the domestic arena. You know, things like health care and economic recovery and, um, you know, addressing inequality and restoring a sort of stability to the middle class, uh, those were the kinds of, and improving education, those were the kinds of things that really excited him. Um, the last thing he wanted to be was you know, sort of George Bush Jr. worrying about counterterrorism all the time. And so, uh, so I think his main focus in the foreign policy arena was actually withdrawing from, uh, from these entanglements, these morasses that he inherited. And that was his main focus. But, you know, um, the world doesn't stay still. And you know, it's, it's certainly the view of some people that his, uh, you know, he wanted to be sort of the opposite of what he saw as the cowboy aggression of Bush and Cheney. Um, and some people would say that his desire to withdraw 
um, sent a message of weakness to a guy like Putin who uh, needed something to distract from uh, you know, the dropping price of oil and the, and the state of the Russian economy and found a good thing to distract people in Ukraine. Um, and uh, you know, I don't think when you say he's being neoconservative there, I, I would sort of disagree with that. Um, you know, I think they've, been, they've tried to be careful not to, for example, send arms to the Ukrainians uh, where you could actually get into, um, you know, the two sides, uh, you know, duking it out with, the, with weapons from two superpowers. Um, but, you know, but it, you, you get the feeling, you know, another thing that I'm looking into now is Libya. In Libya, uh, in 2011, after the Arab Spring, people may remember, uh, you know, people rose up against Gaddafi and um, Obama was very reluctant to get involved. He saw, like, here's another Muslim country and he only agreed to intervene when, you know, other NATO countries and the entire Arab League were getting in on, uh, on this uh, intervention. And still, uh, you know, look at Libya today. It's a colossal mess. And so you can kind of imagine, I don't know that he has these thoughts, but you can kind of imagine that he may have thought like, you know, Jesus, uh, I, you know, told you so kind of thing. So, um, so I get from him... You know, if the pendulum of, of history swings, you had a very aggressive president invading Iraq at a time when it wasn't obvious to, to most people why we needed to invade Iraq, um, to a president who really does not see a lot of positive things coming out, from these, uh, out of these American interventions overseas, wherever they are. Here, Joe, there's one there's a question right here. I'm wondering if, is it, am I coming out loud and clear? Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you could address the sourcing for the allegation that Olaki was an operational sure. leader terrorist. And the reason I ask, it's very, very important because if he was just a man with a soapbox and a microphone, very effective, mm -hmm. but just a man with a soapbox and a microphone, that's constitutionally protected speech. And the only thing I've ever seen came out of the U.S. government, mm -hmm. uh, all governments lie, as I.F. Stone said. So could you address the sourcing sure. outside of government? Absolutely. Um, that is uh, actually a crucial distinction for the U.S. government. The U.S. government said that it, you know, it didn't even begin the legal process to target him for capture or killing until the intelligence agencies had concluded that he was so-called operational. Now, this is a, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a fuzzy distinction in the sense that Osama bin Laden never, you know, presumably put a fuse on a bomb. Um, he was also a sort of mostly a guy with a megaphone, right? An organizer, a recruiter, a kind of encourager of attacks. Um, but no one ever really ever challenged the notion that he was a terrorist. Um, this guy, uh, I think his, his greatest importance by far is as a voice. Uh, but... There is, I think, um, fairly solid information on a number of fronts um, that he had become, uh, you know, a participant in violent attacks, in plotting violence to kill, to kill people. Um, the main, and in fact, you have better evidence against him than you have against um, the vast majority of the terrorists that we have uh, taken shots at with drones out there. Um, this guy, Abdul Muttalib, the young Nigerian underwear bomber. Of course, he survived with bad burns. Um, and uh, he was questioned. His family flew over and tried to talk to him and, and actually convinced him to talk to the FBI. And he described in great detail Anwar Aliki's role in, um, in uh, essentially vetting him. He had him write something to see if he was qualified for a suicide mission. Uh, so he sort of vetted him and approved him for this mission. He was coaching him all along. He introduced him to this bomb maker named Asiri who designed the underwear bomb. He, um, and then he gave him sort of his last-minute um, you know, pep talk and this pitch about make sure you're over, over U.S. soil before you actually blow this thing up. Um, also, in a trial in Britain, some emails came to light in which Anwar Aliki was uh, corresponding with a couple British brothers and one of them looked, worked at British Air, and they were British Airways, and they were kind of interested in getting in on the jihad. 
And Anwar Aulaki in these emails asks all these extremely operational questions like basically, do you or any of the other brothers have training in how the x-ray machines work and how to evade them and so on? So those those are pretty solid. And I, I have to say that um, this is a guy who spent his last years saying to everybody who would listen that it was the obligation of every Muslim to do this. So it's not surprising to, you know, to find that he would uh, do a little bit of, a, of it himself. I'll just add one caveat to this because it unfortunately illustrates the difficulties of doing national security reporting these days. I went to the FBI when I was beginning my research and asked for the interview summaries of the FBI with Abdul Muttalib, the Nigerian guy. And I'd talked to the prosecutors in Detroit already who had put him away, life sentence, um, that case was over. And, and they said, as far as we're concerned, they're not sensitive anymore, they're not classified, they were never classified. Um, so I asked for them. I, uh, you know, sort of banged the drum for months, not wanting to file a Freedom of Information request, which often means, uh, you know, a year, two years, a legal battle. Uh, just, just saying, look, under the law, you should just give them to me. Finally, uh, they said, absolutely not, we're not going to give it to you. So I filed a Freedom of Information request, uh, waited for months. They kind of said at the last, the brain before my book deadline, that they might turn them over, and then finally said, no, we're not going to. So the New York Times has um, sued on my behalf uh, <laughs> to get these things, and you know maybe we'll get them in a couple of years. The same thing happened with the legal opinions justifying the killing of Alaki. I filed a Freedom of information, information request in June of 2010 requesting those opinions. Uh, that request was denied. Uh, the New York Times, you know, it's great to have uh, company lawyers on your side. They, they sued. We fought in court for four years, basically, and, uh, and just last year uh, we got heavily redacted versions of two of the opinions based on a, an appellate court ruling. Um, and I emphasize we weren't asking for sensitive details about these operations um, or future drone operations. We're asking for the legal reasoning that justified killing an American citizen or indeed using um, lethal violence in this context at all. Um, so it's, it is very frustrating. Somebody else should. Uh, okay, my question is just about drones in general. Um, it seems that, that um, technology always has a kind of tit-for-tat um, issue going, and I wonder if, if you've learned anything about what Obama – I can understand his thinking about taking out one person and avoiding the boots on the ground – but aren't we expecting that somebody else is going to come up with this technology and, and repay the compliment? And um, if so, has the conversation been, well, it's worth it in that direction as well? I actually don't think um, before the, the drones were weaponized, which was uh, right after 9-11, uh, and they really began to think this is a great weapon to use against terrorists. I don't think anyone was really thinking about the notion of proliferation. But they have in recent years. I know there was a working group of the State Department thinking very hard about this stuff and worrying about it. And a lot of us who cover these things have been waiting for the Russians to send an armed drone, say, into the Republic of Georgia, where there are Chechen uh, militants hanging out, and killing people, and uh, or the Chinese uh, sending armed drones into, say, Kazakhstan, where Uyghur, Uyghur militants, uh, Muslim militants, have been hanging out. And um, you know, I've been very interested to see the State Department briefing the next day what we what we say. I mean, normally we would denounce that kind of thing, but we would be in a very um, ticklish position denouncing that. Uh, so. There is a lot of thought going into that now, and it is sort of amazing to me. The Chinese apparently considered strongly using a drone to take out a Burmese drug trafficker a couple years ago. But, uh, but it's amazing to me that the Russians and Chinese haven't done this. The only other, country that has, only other countries that have used armed drones, to my knowledge, are um, Israel, uh, 
and uh, the British have used them in Afghanistan uh, and now in Syria, actually, as well. So, um, but it's definitely, it's not that complicated a technology. The, the complicated part is the satellite system to really have sophisticated control and so on. But just the, you know, frankly, the, the, um, they're, they're a little bit worried about terrorism using these things. Uh, you know, you can get a sort of um, essentially a big model plane and strap some explosives to it and try to fl- fly it into a building. And, uh, you know, and the FBI and, and other agencies are thinking about that now. Well, thank you very much to everybody for coming out tonight. <laughs>